Hello and welcome to the, day, uh, to the Globe on the Weekend. This is Ted Yarbrough here today again with Isaac Anderson. How are you doing, Isaac? Very well, thank you, Ted. And I hope all the same as well with all our listeners. So it's a pleasure to be yes. back organising a Globe. Yes, absolutely. Glad to be back and much to talk about as, as normal. Um, you know, folks is chugging along, everything's happening. And I saw that there was a ICM poll that had a four-point lead for the Tories, so maybe uh, Corbin Starr is dying. But I, I think uh, probably not dead yet, though, or not out of the woods. But before we get to any of that, I think we wanted to start to talk about the man whose star is completely rising and continues to go up, you know, without stop, uh, Mr. Jacob Rees-Mogg, MP for uh, Somerset. Uh, does that sound good for our first topic? Indeed it does. I've always been a bit of a Mog fan, so always happy to discuss Jacob with anyone. <laughs> yeah, I'm a full-fledged member of Mog Mentum as, as well. Um, but I wanted to start off talking today about uh, basically where, you know, I think that you are seeing that Mog has now become more from a backbench, you know, kind of a, a cult favorite, a meme person. Uh, uh, meme, meme star until a, a serious political force. Um, being now in charge of the uh, the Tory uh, Brexit, uh, the, the, the chairman of the Tory Brexit group in the House of Commons, um, along with um, his his interventions attacking Philip Hammond and the Remainers for being too downbeat about Brexit, I think is doing a lot to strengthen the government's resolve. Um, I saw Ladbroke had slashed his um, chances of being prime minister now that's where he's a favorite to succeed Theresa May. And the Times reported last Sunday, the Sunday Times, that if Theresa May were to backtrack on the customs union, the single market, that the plan, the Brexiteer plot was to install Boris as prime minister, go as deputy prime minister, and Mog as chancellor. But I think right now, I guess my first question for you is, Isaac, where, where do you think Mog's role is today? Do you believe he's emerging into a serious contender to be a um, future leader? And if so, is it time to promote Jacob Rees-Mogg to cabinet, or do you think he does better in his role as sort of an outspoken Soul of the conservative backbench MPs. What, what is your thought about that? Oh, it's an interesting concept, really. I, I do think that um, um, Rhys Mogg is probably best seen on the backbenches where he can. He's famous for his little quips and famous lines and going places, especially. And I think he would lose that if he were to become a cabinet minister. I mean, once he becomes a cabinet minister, he will start to discover the um, 101 reasons why things can't be done as opposed to the reason things can be done. And I think he'll probably spend more of his time having fun with all the Sir Humphreys yeah. in the civil service than he, than he would, I shouldn't say showing how good a prime minister he would be, but I do think he has the time to visit places. For example, he was at the university in Bristol a couple of days ago was that like those? It was last week, and again there, he showed himself to be um, such a respectful gentleman. Because people, I'm not sure about you, but if I was to have suddenly a large group of people bouncing in, all armed with um, not armed, but 
all with balaclavas and black glasses and hoodies, all jumping up and down and screaming racist and fascist and go away and shoving and pushing people around. It'll be, it'll be rather hard to respond in a call. I mean, uh, one wouldn't, of course, lose one's call, but it'll be hard to try and organise a rational debate. But every time it's, this has happened, and it happened during the election as well, he, Jacob has always maintained that let's have a discussion here, let's have a debate, and that really, imp- to my mind, improves the way that the whole country would see him because he's someone who's calm and able to discuss things. Whereas I think if you were to get into the cabinet, there's too much of the... Um, well, I think he would be, frankly, he would be t- too badly tarnished by collective cabinet responsibility, really. Maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh on the Prime Minister, but I do think he's much better outside of the cabinet for those two key reasons. sure how much you really do need to have in a um to be, to be trained up to be, to be the prime minister and that probably sounds really really silly and short-sighted but if we consider how previous prime ministers and i'm referring back to prime ministers who mr reesborg himself would have been um uh, more knowledgeable about and back into the 18th 1800s the 19th century there wasn't it wasn't so much requirement to um claim well what may be referred to as the greasy pole but rather have been so been knowledgeable about what he wants to do with the country because I mean you can either have a manager or a visionary and I think if if he needs to be trained up as a manager then by all means join the cabinet but that's really I don't think his strong point he's he's the visionary and if it comes to that I think he's probably got an awful lot more experience in the financial world than many chancellors and he's probably got an awful lot more knowledge of British political history and what things have been tried and and failed compared to many even well even speakers and whips and possibly even prime ministers so i think he's been well educated outside of the cabinet so i don't think i wouldn't write him i do think he could go straight ahead into the leadership yeah i i think i agree with that um i mean i i think that traditionally yes that that is needed but you know at least in the 20th century that has been the case but I mean, you look at some of the leaders that have become prime minister. Theresa May went all the way up to Gracie Paul. I mean, she, <laughs> she spent a long time as a cabinet minister and, you know, I think has been, by and large, an ineffective prime minister. I mean, I, I appreciate that she, you know, works to get on with Brexit, but I think she does it out of fear of her own party than out of um, moral... Uh, conviction, uh, but um, you know, I, I think that the the other problem is, you know, like you said, you need somebody who's a visionary, and, and the problem is somebody like Theresa May does not have that uh, vision that I can tell. I think that she's a, a careful, um, you know, manager, but. If you look at, I mean, 
even even not Chris May, but if you look at David Cameron, he was only an MP for four years before he became party leader. Yeah. So it's it's not unheard of. Um, it's not unheard of to, in the modern era. And, and and let's be real, the president of the United States. <laughs> not exactly somebody climbed the the greasy pole. Now, obviously, experience is good, but I think you know he's been an MP since 2010, so it's not like he's new to politics. Like you said, he's the most knowledgeable speaker. I mean, that not knowledgeable speaker, but the most well, I think the best speaker, but the most knowledgeable about British parliamentary procedure and history in the House of Commons. So much so, I remember when the 2015 Parliament started. Um, right after the election, uh, the you know the, the person who gave the opening address was uh, Jacob Breesmaw because he talked about the historical significance of this, that, and the other. You know, and so I think in the past, because of that, people used to view him as a you know future speaker. Maybe he'd bring back the large uh, wigs, which I wish they would, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> but, you know, um, I think he does have that vision. Um, it would be interesting to see. Now, it may have to be some kind of coalition with Boris, and maybe he'd rather be chancellor, frankly. I mean, he, he, he's back on his finance, and maybe, you know, in terms of Brexit, you know, him and Boris share the same view of the world. So, if, you know, they want to not divide Brexit MPs in the next leadership election, they may have to make a deal like that. Indeed. Either way, I, I think a junior ca- cabinet minister post wouldn't work for him. Some, you know, head of culture or something would would be a waste. So I think he either has to be a backbench MP or near the top, either prime minister or chancellor. Uh, that that's that's at least um, what I think. But that what, what do you think? Would you settle for him being the chancellor in a Boris Johnson premiership or, or some other Brexiteers government? Probably him, but you know, it's gonna be somebody else. Yeah. Well, it's def- uh, well, I would. I would say it's definitely better than what we have now. <laughs> I do. I do think um, the chancellor is probably the only other, the only great office of state apart from that of uh, number ten that he could fit into. I, I can't really see him as a home secretary, uh, and I really can't see him as a foreign secretary. That would be funny, though. It would be excessively amusing, but <laughs> I do think Boris Johnson would be better suited as as a foreign secretary. Really, I mean, yeah. if 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 that, but that we're not really we're not we're not discussing him. Maybe our readers yeah. can comment below what they think about that. But yeah. uh, yes, I, I would agree that you would either be at the top or at the bottom. Though interestingly enough, as I would wonder what sort of proposals he would have and what change he would have as Minister for Culture. I, I, I gather as Minister for Sport, it would probably be all cricket, and that would be about it. Possibly, <laughs> possibly skeet shooting as well, but I am not sure. Yeah. He, he, he may not be bad. He could bring back, you know, focus on opera and classical music, and really bringing up, uh, you know, more traditional art and stop handing out money to every single Corbynista who, who is on the West End or something. Yeah, that could be good. Well, I do think do- the, the, the Gilbert and Sullivan and the Dolly Cart productions definitely were part something sh- should be taught as part of British values in school. But now we're, yeah. now we're moving into education. <laughs> but I still don't think he would work there either. Yeah. Probably, the problem there was he would be requiring the teachers to teach things probably that no one else apart from him and some Oxford professors knew. But, I think that would be good, though. But again... Uh... You know, it, it probably wouldn't go down well at the teachers' union 
you know, which is fine. I mean, go fought them for four years and, and did a, a admirable job. You know, the free schools and were, were a good intervention. But um, I there, there is something though that uh, back to what Mog was saying, and I'd be curious to your opinion on this. It's what do we think about Mog's criticism? of the civil service, of the treasury mandarin. I mean, for instance, this report that 15 years from now, the UK economy is going to be significantly poor in every single part of the country. You know, it's amazing. They can't predict six months, but they want to predict 15 years. Do, do, you, <laughs> do, do you think that there is a Whitehall bureaucratic resistance to Brexit that Jacob Brees Mog was right to call out, or do you think that most civil servants do do their best, and that's not fair, or do you think it's somewhere in between? What what is, what is your opinion on, on the civil service and specifically their their actions on on Brexit? Well, I would say I think our civil service is unquestionably one one of the best in the world. I do think they try, well, they try as much as they can to be unbiased. Of course, one can't be completely unbiased. Everybody has their own personal preferences, but I do think I do think they do a very good job about that. Are they are they biased? I would say. Before I answer, I would I, I would rather I'd rather quote the the, the previous prime minister, uh, Cameron, about this. When one person interviewed him just after the um, Scottish independence referendum, the so-called independence, I should say, and they asked him when you before you came prime minister or in your first couple of months. You said that there was no similarity whatsoever between real life and the sitcom Yes Minister. Do you still hold that position? And he unequivocally and, un- and unhesitatingly answered no. There is, a, there is a great similarity between what we see now in reality and Yes Prime Minister, or Yes Minister. Now, it could, of course, have been referring to many other things as part of it, but the question was about, is it, do the, um, the mandarins delay certain, uh, certain things that they dislike? And I do think that's I think that's very likely and very probable. So yes, I do think he's correct. But the civil service is one of those things, somewhat like the NHS, that one can't really um, attack or really question. It's sort of it's it's not only ring fenced; it's mentally ring fenced. So you can have freedom of speech, but you don't really really want to talk about it. It's a, it's, <laughs> outs, it's outs it's outside of proper discussion, which is. Which is a pity, because although I don't mean to be disrespectful to either them or to the um, marvellous work done in the NHS, but unless we comment about it and make constructive criticism, things aren't going to improve. And there is always room for improvement, both in the civil service and the NHS and any other government department or anything else that, well, anything else that mankind is involved in. Don't say mankind, remember what Justin Oh, yeah, said. sorry, person people kind, kind, people kind. <laughs> <laughs> but I think no, it's, no. I do find it's, this is probably more of a CRCC thing rather than British politics, but I do think it's hilarious that a, a self-proclaimed feminist would interrupt a woman speaking to correct her English or Canadian. <laughs> I would have thought if, I would have thought you would treat all people with dignity and respect and allow them to finish their comments by themselves, but hey, maybe that's just me. Yeah, yes, Trudeau, just a wonderful person. I can't wait to, I hope he's voted out of office. He's, he is an immature child. I excuse for a politician, I think. But anyway, I mean, we, we can talk about Trudeau another time. Um, 
the issue of the civil service, you know, I, I think that I think that they probably deserve more criticism than they get. I mean, I'm I, like I said, I, I'm sure that many of them work really hard, but here's a perfect example of where I think that they kind of set their own agenda. And and, and I'll refer back to the breakfast, but I'm reading this uh, amazing book. I'd recommend it to all of our listeners called um, All Out War by Tim Shipman. And he's a Sunday Times columnist. Um, and it's about the lead up to the EU referendum. Indeed, and, yes. And so Cameron, something really, so you learn a lot about the psychology of all these people. I mean, you find out Osborne is a Machiavellian. That's pretty clear. <laughs> Theresa, Theresa May is cautious and, you know, she doesn't, yeah, interesting. And then you find out what, what makes Boris tick and what Gove wants and, and Cameron. So Cameron said something interesting. He said, you know, the entire time when he was doing the renegotiation, he said, George is the most pro-European, you know, then Teresa, then I'm in the middle. He, he called the EU the Ayatollahs, which I thought was really funny. And then he said, uh, then he said Boris was very Euroskeptic and Gove is the most. But something, the reason I bring that up is so when Go, when Cameron was trying to figure out how he could get Boris and Gove on side for his quote-unquote renegotiation, which, I mean, it was, you find out, but it's just EU law makes things impossible. The, 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 the deal he got that Jacob Rees-Mogg called thin gruel that ended up, you know, setting things in motion that ended up uh, defeat, uh, the lead victory. But so Cameron said, well, why don't we just, make a law that says British law is superior to EU law, and then that would satisfy Boris, because Boris's biggest concern was sovereignty. And honestly, that would be mine, and I think a large amount of Brexiteers' biggest problem with the EU is sovereignty. Indeed. And, yeah, so, so Cameron said, well, let's just write a law that says we can still be in the EU, but we, you know, British law, uh, we can overturn any EU, EU law. And the Mandarin's like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> And then he said, well, why not? Because <laughs> that's against the EU law. And he said, well, I don't know, change, find something in the language. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. And so then he really wasn't able to get anything to persuade Boris to back remain. And he ended up obviously backing the lead and the rest of history. But that was an example where the civil service were, had an institutionalized reverence for the European Union. And another thing that Cameron said was funny, which is funny, you know, because he, he had to be leader of the main campaign, but he said that, uh, he said he, he, he said a lot of the civil service are the people that go to sleep at night, or he called them, I think he called them jihadis that go to sleep at night reading the European treaty. Um, <laughs> so the problem is then, the reason I bring that up is, if these same civil servants were going to sleep at night reading European treaties, I wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to undermine Brexit, especially in the Treasury. When it was the Treasury that was sending out such terrible project fear stuff during the referendum that George Osborne, I mean, I don't doubt that George Osborne had a lot to do with feeling that. I mean, he was trying to become prime minister at all costs. The Junker Mail. I'm sorry? The Junker Mail. Yeah, but but if the civil service was complicit in his what we 
relies, you know, the immediate deep recession following a vote to leave that oops didn't happen. And they're still pumping out things like this thing in 15 years, it's going to be a recession. Everybody's going to be poorer and worse off. Isn't some kind of, isn't it proof that maybe there is a little bit of pro-EU bias in the civil service that needs to be addressed? I, I mean, but if so, how, how do we address it? What, what do you think, guys? I mean, Oh, I'd say there's a, there's unquestionably a, a pro-EU uh, bias among civil servants uh, about the fact that they, as you said, the, um, the the take back control law that Cameron wanted to organise. Well, I do think in that respect, I do actually take my hat off to the civil servants in that case because they didn't they didn't sort of fold. They, they, they stuck for what they saw as the truth. Well, that is very case. You can't possibly pass a law like that and still be part of the EU because right. you, it's going to be valueless the paper it's written on because it's just going to end up to the point that it's going to push a question like, okay, the EU says all EU law is superior to British law. We agree to that, but here's a law that says, actually, no, we don't agree to that. We don't agree. To, um, it would go to the court in that, in that case, is what it said. It would go to the European Court of Justice. Which, um, but anyway, sorry, continue. And that, yeah, as you know, good point. That would have gone to the courts, which of course would have struck it down. And what almost could be more concerning at that point in time was it would under, uh, undermine the previous referendum held back in the 70s about the fact that the UK was going to be joining the EEC. So in mm-hmm. that in that case... I think they're hard to, it's hard to discuss, just point out the difference between what you what they may see as plain common sense based on the information that they're given or the information that they that they consume because I think there's a major difference in the information consumed by the um those who still maintain that they sh- we should remain and probably the most rest of the nation or whether they're actively trying to torpedo Brexit. I think that the Junker man, as you famously pointed out, or was definitely torpedoing unquestionably. They could have, however, they could have been following instructions by the um, by the Chancellor. I would not be surprised by any means. Uh, George Osborne seems to be a rather ruthless person, whether or not he has the Prime Minister um, dissected or not. Yeah. <laughs> very crude statements. Yeah. But no, I do think there is a point that they do need. There needs to be questions raised about the civil service, and pointed out that among, I would say overwhelmingly, among the people inside the civil service, there is a pro-EU position, pro-EU bias, and unless they are actively avoiding that, and I doubt many are, that will affect how they're working and what they're doing. So unwittingly. The nation may rapidly may find itself with a civil service that's very different to what the rest of the people want, which isn't anything new. <laughs> yeah. According to most things, most accounts I've heard, this is this has gone back for quite a while, and it's a, a nettle that needs to be grasped and dealt with. I agree, but how, how do you how do you how do we go about it? I mean, because it's the same service and. Gladstone, right? I mean, it's the same civil service that affected meritocracy, and you don't want to go back to the 18th century when your drunken brother-in-law became a civil servant because he needed something for him to do. So, you obviously don't want politicians meddling, but at the same time, 
if if the civil service is if civil servants, I, I wouldn't say in all departments, but at least the treasury is for whatever reason really interested in veto, vetoing Brexit or frustrating Brexit. I mean, what do you do? Is there do you, do you fire people? Like, how, how would you? I mean, it's a tricky situation. Do you do you sack the perpetrators? Or what do you what do you think? Well, it's, it's hard to get to the bottom. Well, I would say if anyone has been in the Treasury found purposely trying to overturn the results of the referendum, and I think we we all know what is meant by that, and we all know that people like Lord Adonis go around trying to torpedo Brexit, no matter how much he may pretend he's a Democrat and how much he may pretend he represents the people. He represents precisely himself and possibly also uh, those of the diehard remain, Remainers who continue to complain about the results of the referendum and are quite ap- ap- applicably known as Ramoners. Yeah. So I would say if there are people like that in the, in the Treasury who are actively trying to stop Brexit, by all means I think that is, that's nearly go so far as to say gross misconduct of their duty, of ministerial duty, which is carrying on the policies to the best of their ability of the government that has been elected. That is part of their duty and that's part of their requirement. I wouldn't say it's the people against the civil service, but rather it is civil servants acting against the history and duty of the civil service itself. So not so much crimes against the British people, but crimes against the concept of a civil service. Yes, yes, I I, I agree. And um, if if we're going to, you know, talk about one sacred cow, I might talk about the other. I mean... Uh, briefly, let's, let's talk about the NHS, and it looks like we've had some shortages this and A&E departments this winter, as always. I mean, I can't remember a winter where everything was you know, everything was going swimmingly. I, I don't. I really. I think there's always a winter crisis every single year, but supposedly this one is um, a little worse. Um, but you know, uh, and so so my question is here. And, and I'll phrase it this way. There's, it seems to me that the NHS, um, most people in Britain seem to be unwilling to talk about any kind of NHS reform, um, which is fine. But there has to be some way of limiting costs. Yes. Because obviously, the, and there's two problems. The population is getting older, you know, and there's heavy immigration and those people are also using the NHS for free and they ever <laughs> now Boris's alternative of course is he still wants the vote leave pledge to be fulfilled once the money comes back from uh, the, the European Union the money that was going to the European Union Boris thinks that that money or at least a large percentage of it should go to the um, NHS and apparently Philip Hammond and Theresa May are having none of that. But he, he thinks that because he, every, all the Ramoners accused him of being a liar, which he wasn't. Everything he said was technically correct on that bus. That's, said, every, everything, that's just the thing that just drives me crazy. Just the fact he's like, the, the lies of the Leave campaign about the bus. It just said, we can spin that on the NHS instead. There was no lie about it. I mean, you could spend it on whatever. You could spend it on, you know, funding uh, bicycle, you know, Boris bikes. It doesn't matter. It, it could be, it's money that would now be free to use by the British government. 
Yes. No, I think the only thing about the only thing on, I was about to say the only thing on the bus that could really be, I think, be questioned was the the size of the three hundred and fifty million a day because they had all the um, the British rebates and then what money you got back. So, but I mean that could be that could be calculated fifty different ways and it would all be correct, or at least ten different right. ways. And technically, it's actually more than three hundred fifty million now. But you're right; they didn't include the rebate. But but that's neither here nor there. The, the the point is, man, it's just okay. So you give it. Say it does get the whole rebate, they pass the bill, call it the Boris bill, somehow he becomes prime minister, somehow Theresa May agrees to this, and they pass giving that much more money. And still, in 10 years, government NHS money, uh, money in the NHS has increased every single year, I believe... I don't think there's been a year that it's ever gone down. It may have gone down in the difference from 2009 to 2010. But government spending is increasing. It would be significantly more increased if we had that. Is the NHS, the NHS obviously needs some structural reform or something to change, or else it's going to keep swallowing up more and more money and taking money from other departments, whether it's uh, defense, whether it's, uh, which, you know, has some pretty big cuts in the past decade. Indeed. Uh, whether it's from uh, the foreign office, whether it's from, uh, you know, whatever. There won't be overseas aid, apparently, but everything <laughs> else. Although Jacob Rees-Mogg did bring a petition to the House, uh, to 10 Downing Street today, and when uh, Pfizer was on the live on air and so maybe if he became prime minister foreign aid might be cuddle but my question is for you like, what, what do we what, what it needs to be done because it seems like this is just a spiraling um cost with with no end in sight of it ever monitoring or going down what what needs to be done to re- make sure that the nhs is is uh there for the next generation and and uh or there to where it's sustainable and it doesn't take up the entire government's budget at the expense of everything else I, th- I think what really needs to be decided now is that British people need to sort of take a, a hard stare in the mirror and and say, what do we want to do here? Do we want to keep funding however much, however much money goes in, however much it requires, or do we want to sort of be uh, more wise about what the money's going? I mean, maybe it's either way is fine, but... I think the nation should decide what is going to happen. For example, there's a famous there was a, there was a bit of a there was a um, YouGov survey done online on the 11th of January that said if you had to choose between the following options, which would you prefer for the NHS? Pay substantially higher taxes in order to maintain current level of NHS services. Keep taxes at their current le- levels and the NHS increasing waiting times or cutting back on some of the services it offers. And then don't know. Uh, so higher taxes won 46%. Keeping taxes are the same won 23%. And don't know was 31%. And However, they did say that 42% of the nation did feel in the current, in the future there will come a point where the country can no longer afford to fund the NHS and it will end up having to be cut back. But I do, But whoever the prime, whoever, whatever Prime Minister touches and thinks of cutting back the NHS is the one who's going to get all the, the long argument that he's killing children and 
making old people slowly die from no lack of kidney machines and all the rest of that is isn't quite correct but it makes very good one minute sound sound clips yeah especially with the conservative prime minister you know the labor party leader could say that um. <laughs> the evil tories yes but i yeah. I personally, this is just my opinion, uh, much I have benefited greatly from the NHS. I've even had my orthodontics paid free of charge by the NHS, which I th- which was very good. However, in this point of national deficit, viewing the um, national deficit is, viewing the waiting list times for A&E services and the waiting times for routine non-emergency and even emergency operations as it is i would say that regardless of whether more money is spent or services are cut back there needs to be a restructuring of where the funding goes inside the nhs for example um one of the major hospitals in the, in the far in the east of england adenbrooks a very famous hospital the cambridge university well has among the main walkways wonderful, beautiful walkways full of paintings. And every time I or other people go in there, you can it's always quite famously known, the question is always, why is the NHS spending taxpayers' money on buying paintings as opposed to healing the sick? And I, I would ask that as a question, whether you'd go through with the... Um, I do think at this stage, regardless of whether we increase taxes for however much the NHS needs. But it seems it's the sort of thing that follows the... I've forgotten who was it, what sociologist found this, but no matter, there's a law that says the amount of money needed by a group increases to match the amount of money possible, yeah. the maximum amount Probably. of money possible. And I do think unless there is a, a rationalisation of the NHS, and I know rationalisation has been used quite badly in recent or can be used badly, things are going to go pear-shaped for the NHS. And more importantly, for all the patients, everyone who, for all those who have to wait four hours in A&E and self-discharge themselves after five hours of what that could be a brain, could be a brain trauma because they can't see anybody and they don't have time to wait in A&E for three, three five, six hours. So at the very least, there needs to be a, a radical review of almost every, I would say, all NHS spending to say, is all this really necessary for the sake of healing the sick and ensuring the nation is he- healthy? Or is this merely um, window dressing, making the hospitals look good, making things effective? And of course, cleaning is vital, but there are many other things that are not vital. And I do think it should be run almost to the point of a, almost the point of an army, really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that army is a good strategy. The other thing I'd say is, I mean, people don't like to use, you know, they're terrified of any kind of privatization, but you know who actually did more privatization of anything in the NHS was actually the Blair government, believe it or not. Indeed. Because they can get away with it being a Labour government even though they're definitely not of the Corbyn variety. <laughs> but, um, you know, look, if the problem is, and like I've said, and you said there was, they're always going to, it's going to, it's pretty much a black hole yes. right now. Um, you know, there's, you know, even if you, 
do some like that. I mean, that would be good to get rid of some paintings. It would be good to get rid of to, to figure out all the, the you know I bet you know how much do they how much do they pay do they really get the lowest rate for syringes? Do they really get do they do, do they pay for the uh, you know the the lowest price for bed mattresses? Do they I mean there's things like this they could use a serious audit. That would probably help, but there probably needs to be some sort of structural reform. Now, what that is, I don't know. I know that the best quoted public, uh, the best, um, the highest ranked health programs in the world, and Sam Hoover's talked about this uh, on our site. Uh, Ian Pye also did on one article last year. The best actually are ranked is actually Japan and uh, France. Believe it or not, the French do. I think that's about the only thing they do right. I wouldn't copy their labor market plans or their, you know, their tax strategy. But on this, and both them and Japan do something very similar, um, which is kind of a combination. It is still single payer. It is still government. It's still free. But it, the payment is largely done through insurance companies rather than um, or nonprofits rather than doing it directly to the government. So for instance, instead of the, you paying your taxes and then the chancellor allocates X amount of pounds for the NHS and then they spend this much and they build the hospital and they do yada yada, you know, they pay the doctors, maybe the nurses. Instead they pool it in different insurance plans for different um you know, that taxpayer money will be kind of used by um, uh, insurance companies or nonprofit charities or whoever. And we're, and then and, and prices are more negotiated and fluid. And instead of being one size fits all, it's more diverse, but still free. And, you know, especially Japan, if you look at Japan, has, I believe, the oldest population in the world and yet do not have the immense shortages of the NHS. Of course, they also don't have a huge immigrant population either. But, you know, but France does. Well, yes. Um, so, it's a sense it's a, but the problem is, I think, with that is, is, I mean, you can tell me this, because you, you have, obviously, a lot more experience in the NHS than I do. Um, obviously, a plan like that would go down fairly badly in Britain. But how do you think, is there a way that the NHS, is there a way to break that to the British people? Would that require some firebrand socialist selling it to them like that? I mean, is there any way that reform could ever be done or is it pretty much just the fools there and, and it's just going to continue to have the problems it is? What, what do you think? Is, is, do you believe the British people? I mean, you brought up an interesting polling that maybe they know in the future it won't necessarily be that. Is there a way you could shake them and say apocalypse now or it have to be a big majority Tory government or socialist I mean what do you, what do you think I, I just it's an interesting concept but I do think it is it is possible the primary thing I think needs to be mentioned first is the fact that it can't continue like this, and there are serious problems inside the NHS. In 2013, I believe, there were 8,000 members of the NHS on six-figure salaries. And, mm. then, and then in 20... Um, and again, again, in late 2013, this, mind you, this is from The Guardian, so take these figures 
with wisdom. Yeah. They, it, they could be alternative facts or fake news. Yeah. It suggested that there were 428 very senior managers who were making between... Sorry, there were 428 very senior managers. There might be fewer than 100 of those making between 70 to 240,000 pounds a year. However, the average pay of the managed super managers was about 123,000 pounds a year. Mm. However, there are 259 chief executives of NHS trusts whose pay is set differently. And in some cases, they are paid more than £240,000 a year. The chief executive of NHS England in 2013, who left, was earned £211,000 a year. I'm sure, I would like to know, but I'm sure uh, the equivalent in the army are not paid that. I've forgotten the name of of our current field marshal. But I very much doubt if he's paid anything near £200,000 a year. Mm-hmm. I very much doubt if carrying on down the 200 officers I mean let's say from colonel, colonel or, or captain in the navy or wing commander they're, they're yeah. not equal ranks of course but I would doubt very much if they paid anything that approaches £200,000 a year so if those who are responsible for protecting us from human threats are not paid that much why should those who are responsible for protecting us from bacteriological, chemical and accidental threats be paid of that sort of money. And what drives me the most frustrating is that all that money is being given to those management, and it doesn't seem we're getting the the best manage the, the best managers. Mm-hmm. The old argument is, oh, you have to pay one, well, otherwise you get the worst. Uh, but at the current state of mind, uh, at, at this rate, I don't really see the best managers. I see brand new hospitals with one-inch holes in fireproof walls, <laughs> lacks of stethoscopes, people having to wait all the time, one or two nurses in A&E departments running around trying to cope with 30 people coming in. Yeah. So I think if this, is, if this is well known, then I think there'll be a lot more people willing to examine where the money is going to do a super audit and then nationally decide where the money is going but i think first of all it needs to be admitted that there is massive wastes or rather i wouldn't say maybe misspending or or unusual allocation of taxpayers funding that needs to be examined and i think once we acknowledge that as, as the public then we will see, and we will all. I think everyone instinctively knows where the money should be going, where the money should not be going. So, if we're saying this isn't a cut, but we are rather examining and reorganising where the money is going for important roles, then I think everybody, including Jeremy Corbyn, because I think if you told him, is he is he in support of people, certain people making two hundred forty thousand a year, while the nurses on the floor make twenty four thousand a year? I don't think I. Fairly sure, I'd probably go through every page of Das Kapital and possibly even, <laughs> possibly even ask the, the John McDonald to go through Mao's little red book of quotes. But I think they'd both agree that there's nothing in either of those books that would possibly support this. I mean, it, look, it looks suspiciously capitalist and oppressive of the working people. Yeah. So oh, I, he's, he's not for himself. I just want to bring that up. Jeremy Corbyn's wife owns a pretty big. Coffee company, but 
we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the less gossip of things like that, the better, I think. <laughs> but no, I think I think there is a way. Um, I'd even go so far as to say it's probably easier to have it cross party than single party. But it's definitely mm-hmm. possible we can sort of take the bull by the horns and say this needs to be fixed. We can reorganise the funding so that what funding does go in goes to where we need it. And I think at the end of that, once we've paid off everything we need, there'll be a surprisingly large surplus in the NHS budget that people won't know what to do with. And then, and then whoever, any prime minister that could do that would be a hero. Of course, like if the leader of the opposition would probably claim that's at the expense of puppy dogs and, um, you know, old people and children. But I, I think you're right. I, I think there does need to be um, uh, definitely reform. One thing that I will add, in terms of the, I think that one thing that the left could get behind um, is if the money was being sent to pay the nurses and doctors maybe more. Yes. Maybe not the doctors. I don't know if they care that much about the doctors, but the nurses in the NHS, I, I, I will tell you that in the United States, the average nurse earns around sixty-five dollars to $70,000 um, a year. Some make up as much as a hundred if they do, um, you know, overtime. Yeah. In the United Kingdom, your NHS nurse earns about twenty-two thousand pounds. Yes. Which is the equivalent of about thirty thousand dollars. So an American nurse makes two to three times as much as the NHS nurse. Now I'm sure the private nurse earns pretty close to the private uh, nurse in America as well. And so the nurses and doctors, uh, the NHS is bleeding the best nurses and doctors to the private sector, which the wealthy in the UK already use. I mean, I think everybody knows that. Um, and middle class too, if they can get it, private insurance. Yes. So if the money was spent in people, on healthcare, and, and, and you know, if the hospital has to be cinder block white buildings, you know, it's fine as long as they're providing good care. So they have to be a Spartan, but, the, but there's good health care. I think if you told the British people that, I, I think that they would get behind it. I do, I do uh, think so, yes. Yeah. Florence Nightingale uh, certainly would have. Yeah, exactly. But, um, let's just, um, so we, we're protecting um, people from physical ailments. Now let's talk about our, I think, our final topic of this podcast. And, what about protecting people from physical ailments from criminals? Uh, there's been a rise in knife crime uh, throughout the United Kingdom in the past you know, couple of years. Uh, crime went down significantly during I, during the first coalition or during the coalition government. Um, and under in, in, in London when Boris Johnson was mayor, but under City Khan and just in general in the United Kingdom in the past year or two. Knife crime has significantly risen. Um, Isaac, you had written a uh, first part of an article about dealing with the knife crime problem, and the second one is coming um, fairly soon. Indeed, yes. What what is to be done about this knife crime epidemic that we're that we're seeing? Um, what how, what do you think the best way is to solve this issue? Well, I do think this may sound very cliche, but I think the best way to um, solve it is to realise it. What and and its sheer size, because I mean, many of us 
live safely and thank God protected from this level of danger of walking out one morning to school and not knowing whether you're going to be jumped by five people with knives as you come back. But every six, uh, statistically, every 16 minutes, someone in the UK gets stabbed. I mean, that's that's shocking. I mean, you don't you don't picture that. You picture that in some sort of many of us picture might picture some slum in some suspicious-looking place somewhere far away. M- makes one think. Makes one think of the international area in Shanghai in the 1920s and 1930s. So I think no one really realizes this especially those in power, and those who aren't in power, especially in the inner cities, in London, they mostly, uh, those who don't have the best opportunities off the bat in life, are now get to the point where many, other, many of them say, do you carry a knife? Yes. Do you want to carry it? Do you, why? Because if I don't, there's a great risk I'll get, I'll get cut up. Do you want to carry a knife? No. Do you want to use it on someone? No. So the only reason you're carrying a knife is because you don't believe you're safe. Yeah. And do you worry about the law? Uh, yeah, but I worry more. I'd rather spend 20 years or even 10 years in prison seeing the morning every, every, every day than to not see the morning ever again. And it's, it's very hard to, to argue with that sort of logic, to, con- to, to convince someone that they're better off dead than to, break, than to have broken a law which says they can't carry whatever they feel they need to carry in order to protect themselves. Now, of course, the real person, the, fir- the first disaster, in my opinion, is the fact that we've reached a position where people no longer feel that the police are capable of protecting them whether that's entirely due to police cuts or whatever, I couldn't say, but I would say that more police means police can be more places at the same time, which means they can respond quicker. So I do think... They they are also spending uh, time on different priorities like uh, internet hate speech. The the, uh, government thinks that's an important thing to spend uh, taxpayer money on. Indeed, Uh, yes. And, I mean, to go back to the NHS discussion, we just said, what do they spend money on? Uh, but regardless, there are, whether it's cuts or spending on priorities of hurt feelings on the Internet or a combination of both, um, there's clearly less on the beat. So if people can't carry knives by law, I mean, is there alternatives that you, you know, that think that maybe people should do to protect themselves besides maybe learning some kind of self-defense class? I mean, what, what do you think would be best? Well, I mean, any form of basic self-defense is useful. Having a telephone on your hand at all times, you can ring 999, police, please, give my address. But unfortunately, the police don't always, well, there's a statement rather... Um, macabre one that when the when you need a poli- when the police are needed second when you need help seconds in seconds the police are only minutes away, so there isn't that much really legally available. Of course, there is a legal loophole in the law that you, one can carry up to a I believe it's a three inch knife, provided it's a pen knife which you carry in case you need to adjust glasses or if you need to open bottles. So there's the. <laughs> There are strange loopholes, but I think the main danger is even if you do have loopholes, what is needed is a method of escape rather than a method of counterattack. <clears throat> this isn't my own uh, concept. I saw it on YouTube by um, a YouTube uh, vlogger, uh, SRS Power, 
vlogs on the um, British firearms scene and also hunting. And his proposal was to um, legalise pepper spray. I read it. I thought it. I listened to it. And I thought it made a lot of sense. Currently, a pepper spray is, I believe, it's even legal for Section Five firearm holders, which means if you can legally own a semi-automatic handgun and legally own an assault rifle or machine gun, you still may not purchase pepper spray. Which, to my mind, sounds rather absurd. I mean, I would have thought one could do an awful lot more damage or cause an awful lot more pain with, a, with a, a machine gun than with pepper spray. But maybe that's how the, the, those who constructed the law after Dunblane felt. But if we were to um, legalise, or if it was to be legal, pepper spray was to be legalised, it would change the uh, overall gang warfare because pepper spray is a standoff weapon, unlike a knife. So in that situation, the um, person with the pepper spray would have the advantage over the person with the knife and that pepper spray has longer range and can, is more effective in the first blast, and then would enable the um, this the, the victim to rapidly escape the assailant, who would be most like more than likely having difficulty cut breathing, coughing, and with his eyes closed, ringing or her eyes closed, of course. Yeah. And to be gender neutral with assailants as well as victims. <laughs> yeah. So I think in that situation, it would be far better for the. Um, for the NHS, there'll be much fewer doctors and nurses needed for operating on massive trauma and major uh, stab wound systems and uh, patients. It'll be better for victims. They'll be able to escape much easier, and it would even be better for assailants because they will not have to. They will not have to worry about being well. The better for assailants' health and that they will would be lethal, and better for assailants and that there'll be more of a deterrence factor, so they will be more there'll be more incentive to follow the law, not to get involved in gang crime and not to get involved in crime of any sort. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent idea. Um, I know that in many countries, uh, women in particular started carrying pepper spray as a way of fending off uh, sexual assault. Indeed. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I think that's an excellent idea, and I think that people should petition their MP about this because it's absolute madness that people have to go face-to-face and be that close to ward off um, an attacker. That, that's unacceptable, especially uh, weaker in our society. Not to say all women are weaker than men, clearly not, but on average, you say um, a female um, woman is a little smaller than a larger male assailant. That, that, could, cause, uh, that, that could cause problems for her defense. Indeed, so, and if- no, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. There are also old age pensioners who may not, who may have served very bravely in the forces in the Second World War and war since then, may not feel quite up to the task of hand-to-hand combat with an assailant with a knife, and would prefer. <laughs> or there might be people disabled who who are in wheelchairs or on crutches. I mean, the, the list of those who are at risk more at risk of crime is is if is endless and now my opinion is the role of government is to protect the na- the, the people of the nation from threats and da- and and hazards yes I, I quite agree i think i think that's right so we do think that and um do we have and so we'll look forward to your article next week on on that if it's able to come out next week or if it comes out another week that's fine but uh I think that's uh, I think that's a good idea, and I think that's something.
something that Britain should get behind because we don't want the vulnerable to be at the mercy of criminals and gangsters. Um, and pepper spray is something that would not cause bottle uh, would not cause permanent damage to assailant, but would protect uh, the victim. So. Indeed. Well, Isaac, I think that about wraps us up for uh, this week. Thank you for uh, speaking with me as always, and I can't wait till next time. Indeed, and thank you to all our listeners who have listened in for tuning into the programme that looks at British political life in a frank, fair and forthright matter. Until next time, thank you.